0: So, Naran, for work, I have actually been doing some research on self-help and popular psychology. And I know that you have a lot of strong feelings about that world. So I would love to hear some of your thoughts about it.
1: I love it. I love everything about it. I I think it's so fun. (laughs) I think it feeds into what we talked about during our Quantified Self episode. Mm -hmm. I love self-optimization and feeling like I can be better and that I own being better and that I I can bear that responsibility. One particular moment stands out to me and that was um, the summer after law school in 2011. I bought the third edition of the Life Hacker book. By Adam Pash, but I feel like it really opened my eyes to like how I could be better. That's when I started doing like zero inbox and being much more methodical about email, which is really weird. I can't believe I survived most of my adult life up until five years ago without really concrete getting stuff done over email skills. And I would say that that never ends. So like I just over a break earlier this year read this great book called Deep Work. And the other part of the title is "Rules for Focus Success in a Distracted World" by Cal Newport. Oh my gosh! Very into that book. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what exactly I took away from it, but I after I read it, I was like, I, I can do anything. I, I <laughs> that I can do that. I, I did it.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. So that is how I feel about self help, which is overall quite positive and like hmm. it's been of great benefit to me.
0: Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Maria Sachko Sasiri. And I'm Naran Khan. This episode is all about the self-help industry, which promises to give out life-changing advice on how to look, feel, think, work, live, and love, and of course, how to win friends and influence people. It's a huge industry and part of popular culture, not only in America, but also all over the world. So if you've ever tried out the 7 Habits of Highly Effective People, walked your way through a 12-step program, or gone deep on an Oprah binge, you know what we're talking about. Self-help can be so empowering, but it can also seem kind of made up and random
1: sometimes. Even more seriously, some theorists claim that it has a dark side too, that it puts all of the responsibility for happiness and success onto individuals. That makes it easier for powerful actors like companies and governments to say, not my problem, and go ahead with policies that exploit everyday people. Helpful or harmful, serious or silly, we're here to investigate and, of course, to talk about our favorite self help celebrities.
0: Can't wait! So, self-help is literature and media that promises to help you just like be better at life, and it's been around in some form or another for hundreds of years. So, from Stoic philosophy in the classical period to my personal favorite, the medieval advice for princes genre, uh, to you know <laughs> things like transcendentalist writing from Emerson, Thoreau. But the genre, as we really know it now, took off in the 20th century, uh, where you're seeing the rise of popular psychology following Freud. But we didn't really see it explode into the phenomenon that we have today until the 1970s. And one of the most interesting things about self-help that I found really fascinating is that people who buy and read self-help books are way more likely to keep buying them. So so there tend to be like a pretty closed circuit group of people who are buying and reading (laughs) self-help books.
1: I like worry that it's me. (laughs) Well,
0: for me, begs the question, like, do they work? Because if the same people are buying them, like, obviously the last book, didn't do what it should have. Or maybe it did, like, so much they wanted to keep optimizing. I don't know. Mm,
1: Big questions. So let's talk about kind of the breakdown of the self-help industry. So self-help books usually combine steps, procedures, or rules with a lot of anecdotes to demonstrate how they work. They usually have an underlying philosophy for seeing the whole world, too. And the classic that lots of folks refer to is – Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which has sold over 25 million copies since it was initially published in 1989. That's a lot of millions. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of books. That's a lot, lot of books. And the underfi- underlying philosophy is of an abundance mentality as opposed to scarcity. So there are enough resources and successes to go around and using that understanding to empower your worldview and decision making.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Another one that gained a lot of popular support uh, well over a decade ago was The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. It was hugely popular after being featured on Oprah, and it itself has sold over 19 million copies. And the premise for that one is there's a law of attraction in the universe that basically means like attracts like. So if you think and act positively, positivity will come back to you. And I always remember that one because – after she was featured on Oprah everyone went around being like well if you just believe enough it will just it'll just happen and that's a secret
0: yeah that doesn't seem like a huge secret to me I'm not gonna lie I had
1: like very legitimate people in my life (laughs) being all about the secret and I was like what are you talking about you sound like you're in a cult it was it was like it was um so puzzling
0: yeah I feel like a really cold hard bastard saying this but I mean like the universe does not work according to the law.
1: Okay, but Maria, like, if it did and you knew it, wouldn't you go around saying stuff like that?
0: <laughs> but then, like, if you, like, Google for a minute, then you'll know that it doesn't. Yeah, no, that's
1: fair. I don't even know why I'm trying to convince you. This is,
0: like, terrible. <laughs> if you just put good vibes back out there, like, good vibes will come back to you. And in some ways, this is true, like, in human relations, like, people are, for various reasons, primed to push back happiness if you push happiness at them
1: except for also there are terrible people out there who take advantage of your kindness and positivity and then just screw you over (laughs) so
0: yeah so there's that and then there's also like i think anytime anyone tries to premise an argument that's totally interpersonal on scientific air quotes facts i get super suspicious yeah so yeah you know me I have a side eye, extreme, like suspicious side <laughs> eye. But I, I need to like keep my view open and wide. I mean, so one of the my biggest side eyes for self help is um, like relationship classic: men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like that book. Okay, so that book is apparently. Uh, sorry, someone just started mowing the lawn outside my window. So if you hear <laughs> it, that's why. So that book is the highest ranked work of nonfiction from the 1990s. Apparently it sold, you know, also millions and millions of copies, number one relationship book. And according to Wikipedia, that very useful source, it grew into a huge franchise that includes books, so many books, recordings, seminars, theme vacations, a one-man Broadway show, a TV sitcom, workout videos, a podcast, men's and ladies' apparel lines, fragrances, travel guides, and his and hers salad dressings.
1: (laughs) Well, that's icing on the cake. That's great.
0: Yeah. So obviously it was huge. And its whole premise is basically that men and women think and act in fundamentally different ways. And that's what kind of creates misunderstandings and unhappiness in relationships. So if you just understand how all men think or all women think, then you can kind of bridge those divides. Which, as you can imagine, makes me crazy. Such a stereotyping way of looking at sex and gender, I feel like reinforces difference as opposed to um, creating opportunities for seeing people the way they really are. But that's just me.
1: You can't have it all, Maria. And I also think it's become really apparent to me that this is like a tremendously lucrative franchise and that if I were to have two brain cells, like I should just pursue – Whatever the thing that comes after his and her salad dressings is, <laughs> and make some, make some cash for myself.
0: My salad dressing is from Venus. His is from Mars. Nice. <laughs> So some of these like underlying philosophies for self-help seem to make sense, right? Like the seven habits of highly effective people one, but there's enough resources and successes to go around. Like that's kind of like emotional, affective as far as I can tell. And like there's no reason why that shouldn't be plausible, I guess, right? Yeah. So some of these philosophies might actually make some sense and be useful or be a good interpretation of the world. Um, And some of them may be like totally bogus but still be helpful for people's everyday interactions. So – Maybe the secret isn't referring to a universal natural law, but actually being nice to people does help some people feel better and get better responses from others, right? That's cool. But for me, one of the things that's really interesting about self-help is that there's also this bigger issue. And this is what you brought up in the intro. It's basically that self-help – exploded onto the scene right around the same time that neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism started really taking hold around the world. And that relationship has given a lot of scholars pause. So bear with me here a second. I'm going to try and like dig down into this a little. So first of all, neoliberalism, you may have heard this like tossed around, but listeners, in case it's been tossed past you as it was for me for a long time, I'm going to explain it a little bit. It's the idea that markets and competition can fix or regulate pretty much everything for the best. That's like the super short and dirty version of it. Okay. So like, for example, in business, the idea that free markets with minimal regulation will let all the best ideas and products and things rise to the top. Neoliberal capitalism has really become the norm since the 70s and culminates in our current economy. So like Mm -hmm. you see it best in – the tech and creative industries where you see them trying to be as flexible as possible to encourage innovation, but as a result can often be like really precarious for the employees. Um, So like Uber is an example or Airbnb that people talk about, right? They're super flexible, but they also often don't provide the same kind of benefits that a traditional job would have offered or full-time work, long-term contracts, that kind of thing. So this tension between being potentially convenient, but also being potentially exploitative. Mm. And all of this is not just like an economic model, but it also ends up being like an ethos, like a way of of being. So this group of sociologists and anthropologists uh, led by Daniel Nehring just published a book called Transnational Popular Psychology in the Global Self-Help Industry. Hmm. Um, And we'll link to it on our website. Um, But in it, they talk about how neoliberalism is built around the idea of the entrepreneurial self, that get-up-and-go self-starter, the idea of, like, trying to be the next Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. And so behind this is, like, this idea that you have to, like, really maximize yourself, be emotionally resilient, and also super self-driven, self-organized. And that's been, like, a totally accepted good. And this is where the self-help industry really can come in.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, it's basically, like, with the right tricks or figuring out the right means to optimize – yourself, the way you operate, who you are, it's in your hands. Like, your success is in your hands.
0: Exactly. And I mean, that's, I think, one of the things that's so wonderful and promising about self-help is that it really gives people a feeling they can participate in this economy, especially people who have been kind of left out of it for various reasons, um, or also people who are, like, in it already and doing fine. The problem is that right now, so many people in America are really hurting and really struggling economically, We have, like, the largest wealth inequality in the world, go America, in the worst way possible, Um, and really stagnating social mobility. Yeah. You know, and this is true even after recovering from the recession, more or less, in, like, uh, economic terms. Most Americans are really not doing better overall. Uh, Apparently, in 2011, the 400 wealthiest Americans had more wealth than half of all Americans combined, People need some help, right? And they're like, I want to be, like, in this system. So then it's more about how do you just, like, be part of it instead of trying to change it. There's also something to be said about the
1: people you look to in this industry, like, as the icons of entrepreneurial self. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are, like, white men. yeah. And so they really do epitomize, if you just look at the demographics, they epitomize people who are born into privilege in certain ways. I mean, it really does help people abdicate responsibility for one another.
0: And what self-help does is it promises or offers to give you access to a system that is kind of set up at the moment to not serve everybody, but to only serve the people at the top. And it can make it so that people feel like it's their fault if they're not succeeding you know, which, you know, to a certain extent, we obviously have to take responsibility for our lives. But when it becomes so all-consuming that we can't see that there are, like, big social questions that need to be fixed, I think that's a problem when we can't do things communally anymore.
1: Yeah. That totally makes sense and resonates for the work stuff. But what about kind of your personal life and interpersonal relationships and your own spirituality?
0: Yeah, that's so true, right? Because a lot of the self-help stuff is not just about your job but or making money. It's also about your personal life. And one thing that I found really interesting in my research was seeing how this ideology incentivizes them shifting their ideas of success into other realms of their lives. So this woman's Jennifer M. Silva, she's a sociologist. She wrote this book called Coming Up Short, where she does work with young American working class adults kind of across the country. Mm-hmm. And she found this really interesting thing where across race and geographic boundaries, all of these Americans were... Defining their life success, not in terms of traditional markers like getting a job or a promotion, getting Mm -hmm. married, buying a house or whatever it was, but instead kind of measuring their lives in terms of like therapeutic or emotional success. Mm -hmm. So in terms of overcoming personal trauma. And these, she found all these people from these, you know, kind of relatively modest backgrounds were super familiar with the language of trauma and therapy. And a lot of it came from things like Oprah, reading self-help books from like school counselors and that kind of thing. And so, you know, self-help ends up even when it's nothing to do with work, being part of a a shift where in a neoliberal economy, people are no longer having access to traditional markers of success and instead are starting to realign their idea of success around their personal lives. So
1: self-help books and media can give people a sense of agency in the increasingly precarious world of neoliberal capitalism. It offers people tools to survive in this economy or help them feel competent in other parts of their lives by refocusing their conception of success. On emotional achievements. That can be a very welcome ray of hope for people who are struggling, but it can also make people feel like they have nobody to blame but themselves when things don't go their way and nobody to turn to but themselves to help change the situation. In other words, self help is not apolitical. Far from it.
0: So now we've talked a little bit about the good, the bad, and the ugly of self-help. I want to learn more about it from my personal guru, and that is you, Naran. As you know, I know not nearly enough about self-help, and I know that you have a special love for Oprah, who is so super central to this whole economy of self-help that this one media scholar, Janice Peck, wrote a book about her called The Age of Oprah, Cultural Icon for the Neoliberal Age. Tell me everything. Well, if I could tell you everything,
1: I th- that would be my dream. I don't know everything. <laughs> I will tell you, though, I was a devoted watcher my entire life. She'd be on at 4 o'clock after school. So any time of the year I would, didn't have something going on after school, I would, like, rush home and watch Oprah. This is pre, like, DVR. But after I graduated from college, just before I left for Oxford, mm-hmm. you know, more than 10 years ago, I – rented at, like, Blockbuster, the 20th anniversary DVDs of her show. They basically were collected highlighted clips of her show over the years. And everything from, like, one entire DVD devoted to celebrities to important real topics in the news to key Oprah moment. And, I mean, they were just, like, categorized topics. It was awesome. It was, like, if I can recommend that to anyone – well, it wouldn't be to you because I don't think this is for you, but <gasps> wait, wait why? why wouldn't why wouldn't I also be like moved by the Oprah? I think there are elements of it you would be compelled by, but the dark stuff we've talked about, <laughs> the political nature of this, like the dark edge, the neoliberal edge, manifests so aggressively. I just feel like it would prohibit your enjoyment.
0: What's the kind of stuff that's participating in that
1: or not? Well, I mean, we talked about the secret before. She was a huge secret devotee and, mm-hmm. you know, propagated it. That's one of many different strategies that she highlighted. So, you know, I can't remember others off the top of my head. I just know that I, – I mean, like, you think about Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil the psychologist and, and Dr. Oz. Like, all of these experts had segments on her show where they – help individuals work through issues, but also presented steps and concepts in the way that self-help books would as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing I came across when I was reading about self-help movement was um, this kind of shift that happened in Oprah's work in the mid-1990s, where she went from what she was calling trash TV towards self-help and new thought spiritualism um and how that kind of moved towards like this inspirational self maximizing optimizing version of her show really helps to make Americans from like a broad range of backgrounds really conversant in the language and ethos of recovery. There's this great book called Language of the Heart by Trish Travis, which really looks at the like recovery movement starting with Alcoholics Anonymous going up through Oprah. And to me, it's really interesting in like what we were just talking about earlier with Jennifer Silva's work and How everyday people start to see their lives through the lens of, like, recovery and trauma. Mm -hmm. The role that Oprah played in that.
1: Totally. And, I mean, this might be a chicken and egg thing, but Oprah, to many, has kind of the status of a deity Mm -hmm. imbued with a lot of the spiritual implications as well. And so the question is, did she take on this sort of stuff after Oprah the person was established and they kind of went hand in hand? Or Did she achieve deity-like status because she was the propagator of all of these practices and spiritual somethings?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Also, like, what it does for someone's brand if they become seen as someone who is spreading this kind of information or um, inspiration in the world. Because you go from being just, like, famous and cool to, like, a guru, right?
1: Yeah, totally. Totally talk about Gwyneth Paltrow and goop but yes
0: what what about Gwyneth Paltrow with like the worst name ever goop it's so weird I don't get it
1: I mean it's her initials I think I can't remember off the top of my head but she's transcended the weird word that it is because like goop prior to goop was like (laughs) like a mushy sandcastle or something gross and so what it still is to me. It's totally divorced from that in my head. Like, goop is its own thing. Oh. So the thing I'll say about this is I i am a huge devotee of celebrity memoirs. And they often dance on the line of being self-help books. And the refrain you hear time and again for, from celebrities when they're promoting these books is that a lot of people ask me for help. And this is my gift. Like this is really what I want to give back to my fans to really help them because I have this special knowledge. And it's positioned as being this altruistic effort when it's really edification of a celebrity's own brand and an opportunity to present yourself in the best light. And I also think it's an opportunity to be – memoir and self promote and self anecdote without committing to an honest-to-goodness memoir where you recount the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if there are bad and ugly things, it's about how you overcame them so you still come out with a sterling reputation. Yeah, I do think there's something to learn from people's personal stories and their reflections on those stories. So I guess the thing I don't ascribe to is here are the four steps you need to take to do X from a random celebrity who it's totally clear, fell into whatever they're doing by a combination of sheer hard work and random mm. chance, which is basically the bulk of all of, like, as, as far as I can tell, that's how people become successful. It's like all the stuff that's in your control and, like, way more stuff that's kind of not in your control and happenstance and mm. w- either what you're born into or the moon and the sun and the stars all aligning for whatever kind of eclipse that caused what you have.
0: This is a lot of criticism for someone who is a, uh, like, self-defined devotee, so right now you're not convincing me. So I just, I find it a great practice of self-reflection. Now, so
1: I can like some of these books. In the past year, I've read Jules' autobiography, which I thought was so fantastic until the end when she gets very self-helpy, and then it becomes, like, deeply annoying and kind of cancels out how (laughs) awesome and remarkable her own personal story is. She grew up super poor in Alaska. Yeah. This like resilience narrative that will put anyone else to shame. She, you know, obviously had been through a lot and is deeply talented. I mean, just everything about her is so awesome. Really, truly read the first half of that book and you won't regret it.
0: Yeah. It's like work your ass off and be lucky as shit. <laughs>
1: Another book I read this year was Shonda Rhimes' book, Year of Yes. Uh,
0: Shonda. Shonda.
1: It was so good. It was really fun. And, you know, it was a memoir in the sense that they were really personal anecdotes. But it was one of those self-help books that I totally could not get behind in terms of the bigger message because I have no – right to say yes to anything else in my life. Like I need to have my year of no. And like that any book I read should be based on that premise. So I didn't read it to like get to a place where I was saying yes to things. Right.
0: (laughs) You have the opposite problem. Exactly. Although
1: she might tell me that like I'm saying yes to the wrong things. And Hmm. so, you know, that might be that might be her loosey-goosey argument. I thought that was like a fantastic book. I've read a couple of Real Housewives advice books which are terrible. Oh my god, what do they say? Uh, well, I read a book called A Place of Yes. I may also own it by Bethany Frankel. And I don't like her. I feel like she's rude. Is she the skinny girl lady? Yeah, she's just like actually really rude. I feel like she has no manners. That's what my mom would say about her. Just like the Simpsons. She has no manners.
0: <laughs> also, her brand. What? Skinny it's just, girl? It's like built on fat shaming. I don't want to hear special. it. It's real special.
1: So yeah, like I may have owned that book. I don't really know what to say about it. But recently I read Redefining Realness by Janet Mock. So good. And a couple of others. So I think celebrity memoirs can be fun. I think there's something to be learned. But I can fast forward for you and tell you the thing that you can learn is work hard and good luck. And like that's really what you need to learn. And then it's just fun and interesting to learn about people's stories. I like autobiographies for the same reason I like Biographies. I think they're interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, like, I can get behind that. Oh,
1: thank you. I, I like, my dream in life, my, my dream in life is not to disappoint you, Maria, so thank God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> High praise. I feel like I'm so mean, you know? Like, why can't I just feel the love of The Secret like everybody else? Instead, I've got to be... I've got to be down on it because it's based on complete made-up science.
1: I mean, just listen to yourself. It is truly made-up on – like, <laughs> premised on made-up science. It is super dangerous if everyone in our society was, like, in love with everything and not not encouraging us to think a little bit before we sign over all of our self-possessions to our cousin because you want to spread the positivity or something, you know? <laughs>
0: Oh, well, thank you. I don't want to just let you down either, so (laughs) that makes me feel better. (laughs) For me, you reading all of these celebrity self-help books and sites and things, it feels more like a kind of a celebrity friend version of the way you gather stories and information from the people in your everyday life. And, you know, as long as you're kind of like balancing them out with each other and not subscribing to the Church of Gwyneth Paltrow, (laughs) then that sounds fine. (laughs) with my revelation. Hello, my friend. I see you're back again. Hello, mystery. Don't bother to So as we have seen, celebrity self-help culture can be a lot of fun and even give you some pearls of wisdom for rethinking your life. We just have to remember to keep it in context, to be aware that we participate in these celebrities' brands when we subscribe to their worldviews, and to feel free to push back or adjust for our own personal approaches. If they can make it up, why can't we? So, Naran, after this whole conversation, what do you feel like is your philosophy or your approach to self-help in your own life?
1: Like so much of what we do, I actually think that being aware of the broader structures at play is super important. So I don't think I'm going to stop buying life hacking books or reading blogs that help me optimize my day in my life. Mm -hmm. But I do have a sense – a stronger sense that they can perpetuate – privilege. And while some people might be like, oh, you're democratizing expertise and this niche knowledge is getting out to everyone, I'm just increasingly of the mind that it's actually upping the ante and privilege finds other ways to manifest. And so it's great and fun. And I'm glad in my own like little world, I feel like I have control and am able to have agency over the course of my life. I just know that's not the case for everyone. And I think that knowing that is really important. But I don't think it's going to stop me or change my own personal development habits. It just might make my like broader life's work to think about the structures at play some more.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And I wouldn't want you to stop being you because who else is going to tell me what's going on with Oprah? It's it's too much. But yeah, thanks.
1: (laughs) What about you? Um, How do you think you're going to approach self-help in your own life now?
0: Well, I have to say, like, I came into it with, like, a very skeptical eye. Um, But especially after talking to you about it and hearing, you know, what it's done for you and reading about what it's done for other people, I will say I'm not totally against it except for cases where it's full of lies. So, (laughs) like, like, (laughs) I don't mind, like, the underlying claim of that, like, in the sense of be nice to people. Like, don't be a jerk. That's fine. BS scientific and sociological claims, especially my personal enemy, biological determinism. I'm looking at you, men are from Mars, women are from (laughs) Venus. That makes me want to break something, you know, because I feel like it all makes all of us stupider and less able to understand each other.
1: Wait, one second. Have you heard of Steve Harvey's book?
0: No, wait, no.
1: Steve Harvey has a book that's like super ultra popular, which I think is the successor to the Mars Venus book, which is "Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man: What Men Really Think About Love, Relationships, Intimacy, and Commitment."
0: <laughs> oh, just hearing the title makes me you skin love cold. it. You love it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe it's useful for people if they live completely in like a gender locked world, which a lot of people do.
1: Oh my god, I'm sorry. He has a blurb from Aretha Franklin on his book jacket. <gasps> Where she says, women should listen to Steve Harvey when it comes to what a good man is about. (gasps) Steve Harvey (laughs) dispenses a lot of fabulous information about men. (laughs) Aretha, no. I love you, Aretha. What are you doing? (laughs) I totally hijacked what you were saying about your philosophy. No,
0: I I find this important, but also giving me pause because I just inherently trust Aretha Franklin because of the power of her amazing Uh. vocal cords. (laughs) Uh, I think that... You know, having steps out there in the world to help us remind ourselves to listen to each other and to assert ourselves when it's necessary, like all of that stuff is good. And like feeling like you have agency over your life and working through your own issues, also good. But I do think it's just very important to try to, like you said, keep it in perspective of the larger picture and try to balance all of this me, 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 individual self-looking with community and activism as much as possible. So like we, we, we. Yeah, there you go. We're going to wee-wee together. I know. <laughs> oh, my God, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so like working together. So not just for myself, but for all of ourselves. Yeah. Self-help in that way.
1: I love it. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at theorypodcast at gmail.com. You can find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. We post updates and new content there and on Twitter too. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, and recommend us to any and all of your friends.
0: In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our wonderful star, Liv Hawk, Music composition and art designed by the sensational Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.